on 21st Street. Happy Hour, Mutiny Radio, .fm, here in .sf. Calling all crusties, punks, and poses. Pick your posteriors up off the pavement. Pack up your pins and patches and prepare to party. The Pacific Northwest Best Fest returns this Saturday only at the SeaTac Expo Center. Whether you're a leather lover or just a denim demon, if you're looking to dress to impress for less, do not stress. You'll find all the best in pre-distressed fest right here at the Pacific Northwest Best Fest. With over 40 vendors that are countless crossover styles, you'll find the perfect thing for your scene. Metal, thrash, Walmart, Ives, and everything in between. All in one place. One day only. Unless it's a jacket. If you need a jacket, take your square ass somewhere else. Never pay for fabric you don't need. Never pay for fabric you don't need. Ditch the sleeves at the Pacific Northwest Vest Fest. This Saturday at SeaTac, I've listened to The Breaker so many times. It's fantastic. You are listening to the AltaCast slash Some Call Me Tim slash Cam and Toya hang out on the radio. Sometimes I have a nervous breakdown, and that's a lot of fun for everyone. Although it is true, uh, I really can't sometimes figure out problems that I have until I have a nervous breakdown, and then all of a sudden the answer comes to me. It's unfortunate, but it's part of my process, and I think I just need to forgive myself for it and be like, every time I lose my mind, I come up with a great idea. Like a way to save the station through education. Oh my gosh, we have this big space. What do we do with it? Nothing. <laughs> but I used to be, you know, a teacher, a credentialed school teacher. I got some master's degrees. You might listen to Mutiny Radio and hear about that stuff. There's no reason why I can't be teaching. So we're going to turn Joke Workshop into the Joke Workshop Academy, the Mutiny. Joke Academy. I don't know what we're going to call it yet. 415-550-0511. Call in. Give me an idea. I don't know what to call it yet. But it's going to be like an academy and a six-week class, six two-hour classes. It's 12 hours of instruction, and there'll be a show at the end. And we have deliverables. I know these words are very key with everyone. At the end of my class, you will have a hot three-minute, a hot five-minute. You will be able to do a show in front of actual people. We will sell tickets. We will learn about marketing and doing your part. We're going to basically, we're going to, I'll teach you how to be a stand-up comedian. I literally go out all the time and still do it. And I can teach you how to write. So that's great. So we're going to do that on Mondays. $300 to $500 sliding scale. What a deal. If you don't have money, $300. If you do, you can pay us more. You know you can afford it. Help out Mutiny Radio. Help keep us alive and maybe thriving someday in the mission. But I also thought, what else could I teach? Poetry. So I'd like to teach a class on Saturdays from 4 to 6 and have a poetry workshop and all kinds. I mean, it'll be, it's, I mean, it's only six weeks. Seventh week, obviously, is another show that it'll be on Mutiny Radio. We'll live stream it. It's going to be super fun. You get to perform your poems. We might even make a little zine of the best ones and put them together and learn about editing. And I teach all these tricks about poetry, poetic games like cut-ups from William Burroughs. And, you know, I'm not going to go into, like, I don't think we're going to make a pantoum, you know, but we could because I know those forms and structures. It depends, honestly, what the class brings and what they're looking for. And I can feel it out because I've been doing this for years, you guys. So anyways, I feel very chuffed because 
you know, I might have figured out a way to save the station without having grant funding. Because we should be self-sustainable without grant funding, don't you think? Yes, that's how businesses work, people. Come to Jesus talk with myself on that one. All right, speaking of Jesus, I'm excited about this. Uh, We were gifted this amazing history of God, like narrated by Karen Armstrong. And I'm really digging it. Um, Disc one was all about monotheism. uh, And I'm excited to see what disc two brings us. At 115, you know what we're going to be bringing in? Latoya, the Sheriff of Truth. We're going to talk about Sunday Streets. What a success that was on Sunday. Wow. Over 25,000 people descending in the streets of the mission on Valencia. It's really fun to see people just in the street. And I kept thinking, other cities do this. It's just so wild that trying to create community and hang out and make the city cool again. And it is. It still is. Support Mutiny Radio so we can stick around, so that we can keep making things cool. Yay. All right, this is the history of God or something. Here we go. Let's see. At the same time as Philo was expounding the Platonized Judaism in Alexandria and Hillel and Shammai were arguing in Jerusalem, a charismatic faith healer began his own career in the north of Palestine. We know very little about Jesus. The first full-length account of his life was St. Mark's Gospel, which was not written until about the year 70, some 40 years after his death. By that time, historical facts had been overlaid with mythical elements, which expressed the meaning Jesus had acquired for his followers. It is this meaning that the Gospels primarily convey, rather than a reliable, straightforward portrayal. The first Christians saw Jesus as a new Moses, the founder of a new Israel. Jesus seemed to encapsulate some of the deepest aspirations of many of his contemporaries and to give substance to dreams that had haunted the Jewish people for centuries. During his lifetime, many Jews in Palestine had believed that he was the Messiah. He had ridden into Jerusalem and been hailed as the son of David, the Messiah. But only a few days later, Jesus was put to death by the agonizing Roman punishment of crucifixion. Yet, despite the scandal of a Messiah who had died like a common criminal, his disciples couldn't believe that their faith in him had been misplaced. There were rumors that he'd risen from the dead. Some said that his tomb had been found empty three days after his crucifixion. Others saw him in visions, and on one occasion, 500 people saw him simultaneously. His disciples believed that he would soon return to inaugurate the messianic kingdom of God. And since there was nothing heretical about such a belief, their sect was accepted as authentically Jewish by no less a person than Rabbi Gamaliel, the grandson of Hillel. His followers worshipped in the temple every day as fully observant Jews. Ultimately, however, the new Israel, inspired by the life death and resurrection of Jesus would become a Gentile faith, which would evolve its own distinctive conception of God. By the time of Jesus' death in about 30 CE, the Jews were passionate monotheists, so nobody expected the Messiah to be a divine figure. He would simply be an ordinary, if privileged, human being. Jews expected the Messiah, the Anointed One, to be a descendant of King David. 
the Psalms, sometimes called David or the Messiah, the Son of God. But that was simply a way of expressing his intimacy with Yahweh. Nobody had imagined that Yahweh actually had a son, like the abominable deities of the Goyim. Mark's Gospel, which as the earliest is usually regarded as the most reliable, presents Jesus as a perfectly normal man, with a family that included brothers and sisters. No angels announced his birth. When he began to teach, his townsmen in Nazareth were astonished that the son of the local carpenter should have turned out to be such a prodigy. Mark begins his narrative with Jesus' career. It seems that Jesus may originally have been the disciple of one John the Baptist, a wandering ascetic who urged the populace to repent and to accept the Essene rite of purification by baptism in the River Jordan. Jesus had made the long journey from Nazareth to Judea to be baptized by John. As Mark tells us, no sooner had he come out of the water than he saw the heavens torn apart and the Spirit, like a dove, descending on him. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, the Beloved. My favour rests upon you. John the Baptist had immediately recognised Jesus as the Messiah. The next thing we hear about Jesus is that he began to preach in all the towns and villages of Galilee, announcing, The Kingdom of God has arrived. There has been much speculation about the exact nature of Jesus' mission. Very few of his actual words seem to have been recorded in the Gospels, and much of their material has been affected by later developments in churches founded by St. Paul after Jesus' death. Nevertheless, there are clues that point to the essentially Jewish nature of Jesus' career. It has been pointed out that faith healers were familiar religious figures in Galilee, like Jesus, these Galilean holy men often had a large number of women disciples. Others argue that Jesus was probably a Pharisee of the same school as Hillel, just as Paul, who claimed to have been a Pharisee before his conversion to Christianity, was said to have sat at the feet of Rabbi Gamaliel. Certainly, Jesus' teaching was in accord with major tenets of the Pharisees, since he also believed that charity and loving-kindness were the most important of the commandments. Like the Pharisees, he was devoted to the Torah. He also taught a version of Hillel's golden rule when he argued that the law could be summed up in the maxim, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. After his death, his followers decided that Jesus had been divine. This did not happen immediately. The doctrine that Jesus had been God in human form was not finalized until the 4th century. The development of Christian belief in the Incarnation was a gradual, complex process. Jesus himself certainly never claimed to be God. At his baptism, he had been called the Son of God by a voice from heaven, but this was probably simply a confirmation that he was the beloved Messiah. Jesus himself used to call himself the Son of Man. The original Aramaic phrase simply stressed the weakness and mortality of the human condition. If this is so, Jesus seems to have gone out of his way to emphasize that he was a frail human being who would one day suffer and die. The Gospels tell us that God had given Jesus certain divine powers, however, 
which enabled him, mere mortal though he was, to perform the godlike tasks of healing the sick and forgiving sins. When people saw Jesus in action, therefore, they had a living image of what God was like. They also noticed that Jesus had never claimed that these divine powers were confined to him alone. Again and again, Jesus had promised his disciples that if they had faith, they would enjoy these powers too. By faith, of course, he didn't mean adopting the correct theology, but cultivating an inner attitude of surrender and openness to God. If his disciples laid themselves open to God without reserve, they would be able to do everything that he could do. They would discover that their frail, mortal lives had been transfigured by the powers of God that were active in the Messianic Kingdom. After his death, the disciples could not abandon their faith that Jesus had somehow presented an image of God. From a very early date, they had begun to pray to him. St. Paul believed that the powers of God should be made accessible to the Goyim. Paul never called Jesus God. He called him the Son of God in its Jewish sense. Paul certainly didn't believe that Jesus had been the incarnation of God himself. He had simply possessed God's powers and spirit, which manifested God's activity on earth and were not to be identified with the divine essence. Not surprisingly, the new Christians didn't always retain the sense of these subtle distinctions, so that eventually a man who had stressed his weak, mortal humanity was believed to have been divine. The doctrine of the incarnation of God in Jesus has always scandalized Jews, and later Muslims would also find it blasphemous. It is a difficult doctrine with certain dangers. Christians have often interpreted it crudely. Yet this type of incarnational devotion has been a fairly constant theme in the history of religion. We shall see that even Jews and Muslims developed some strikingly similar theologies of their own. St. Paul, the earliest Christian writer, who created the religion that we now know as Christianity, believed that Jesus had replaced the Torah as God's principal revelation of himself to the world. When Paul explained the faith that had been handed on to him, he said that Jesus had suffered and died for our sins, showing that at a very early stage, Jesus' disciples, shocked by the scandal of his death, had explained it by saying that it had somehow been for our benefit. The early Christians felt that Jesus was in some mysterious way still alive, and that the powers that he had possessed were now embodied in them, as he had promised. We know from Paul's epistles that the first Christians had all kinds of unusual experiences that could have indicated a new type of humanity. It seemed that Jesus' death had indeed been beneficial. It seemed to have released a new kind of life and a new creation, a constant theme in Paul's letters. There were, however, no detailed theories about the crucifixion as an atonement for some original sin of Adam. This theology didn't emerge until the 4th century and was only important in the West. Paul and the other New Testament writers never attempted a precise, definitive explanation of the salvation they had experienced. Some 40 years later, 
the author of St. John's Gospel, which was written in about 100 CE, described the Word, or Logos, which had been with God from the beginning and had been the agent of creation. Through him, all things came to be. Not one thing had its being but through him. The author was not using the Greek word logos in the same way as philo. The term is used to describe God's activity in the world. It performs the same function as the other technical terms, like glory, Holy Spirit and Shekinah, which emphasized the distinction between God's presence in the world and the incomprehensible reality of God itself. Like the divine wisdom, the Word symbolized God's original plan for creation. When Paul and John spoke about Jesus as though he had some kind of pre-existent life with God, they were not suggesting that he was a second divine person in the later Trinitarian sense. They were indicating that Jesus had transcended temporal and individual modes of existence. Because the power and wisdom that he represented were activities that derived from God, he had in some way expressed what was there from the beginning. These ideas were comprehensible in a strictly Jewish context. In the Acts of the Apostles, a book written as late as 100 CE, we can see that the first Christians still had an entirely Jewish conception of God. Acts tells us that shortly after Jesus' death, on the Feast of Pentecost, when hundreds of Jews had congregated in Jerusalem to celebrate the gift of the Torah on Sinai, the Holy Spirit had descended upon Jesus' companions. Immediately the disciples rushed outside and began preaching to the crowds. To their amazement, everybody heard the disciples preaching in his own language. When Peter rose to address the crowd, he presented this phenomenon as the apogee of Judaism. This day would inaugurate the messianic kingdom when God would live on earth with his people. Peter did not claim that Jesus of Nazareth was God. He was a man commended to you by God by the miracles and portents and signs that God worked through him when he was among you. After his cruel death, God had raised him to life and had exalted him to especially high status by God's right hand. The prophets and psalmists had foretold these events. Thus, the whole house of Israel could be certain that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah. This speech of Peter, the chief of the apostles, appears to have been the message or kerygma of the earliest Christians. During the first century, Christians continued to think about God and pray to him like Jews. They argued like rabbis, and their churches were similar to the synagogues. There were some acrimonious disputes in the 80s with the Jews, when Christians were formally ejected from the synagogues because they refused to observe the whole of the Torah. In the Roman Empire, Christianity was first seen as a branch of Judaism, but when Christians made it clear that they were no longer members of the synagogue, they were regarded by the Romans with contempt as fanatics who had committed the cardinal sin of impiety by breaking with the parent faith. Romans were highly suspicious of mass movements that threw off the restraints of tradition. During the second century, however, some pagan converts to Christianity tried to reach out to their unbelieving neighbors, 
in order to show that their religion was not a destructive breach with tradition. One of the first of these apologists was Justin of Caesarea, who died in about 165 CE as a martyr for the faith. In his two apologiae, or explanations, he argued that Christians were simply following Plato, who had also maintained that there was only one God. He also argued that Jesus was the incarnation of the Logos, or divine reason. Other Christians were developing far more radical theologies. In particular, the Gnosticoi, the knowing ones, turned to mythology to explain their acute sense of separation from the divine world. The Gnostics all began with the utterly incomprehensible reality which they called the Godhead. There was nothing at all that we could say about it, since it entirely eludes the grasp of our limited minds. The Logos had come to the rescue and descended to earth, assuming the physical appearance of Jesus in order to teach men and women the way back to God. Eventually, this type of Christianity would be suppressed by the Church, but centuries later, Jews, Christians and Muslims would return to this type of mythology, finding that it expressed their religious experience of God more accurately than Orthodox theology. When Christians were persecuted by the Roman authorities, they were accused of atheism because their conception of divinity gravely offended the Roman ethos. People feared that the Christians, by failing to give the traditional gods their due, would endanger the state. Christianity seemed a barbarous creed that ignored the achievements of civilization. By the end of the second century, however, some truly cultivated pagans began to be converted to Christianity and were able to adapt the Semitic god of the Bible to the Greco-Roman ideal. Christianity was coming into its own in a world where Platonic ideas predominated, and by the year 235 it had become one of the most important religions of the Roman Empire. Christians now spoke of a great church with a single rule of faith. Christianity was becoming an urbane creed that eschewed the complexities of the mystery cults and an inflexible asceticism. It was beginning to appeal to highly intelligent men who were able to develop the faith along lines that the Greco-Roman world could understand. The new religion also appealed to women. Its scriptures taught that in Christ there was neither male nor female and insisted that men cherish their wives as Christ cherished his church. Pagans were particularly impressed by the welfare system that the churches had established and by the compassionate behaviour of Christians toward one another. During its long struggle to survive persecution from without and dissension from within, the church had also evolved an efficient organisation that made it almost a microcosm of the Roman Empire itself. As such, it had become a force for stability and appealed to the Emperor Constantine, who became a Christian himself after the Battle of Milvian Bridge in 312, and he legalised Christianity the following year. Christians were now able to own property, worship freely, and make a distinctive contribution to public life. Even though paganism flourished for another two centuries, Christianity became the state religion of the empire. Soon, the church, which had begun life as a persecuted sect, pleading for toleration, 
would demand conformity to its own laws and creeds. The reasons for the triumph of Christianity are obscure. It certainly would not have succeeded without the support of the Roman Empire, though this inevitably brought its own problems. Supremely a religion of adversity, it has never been at its best in prosperity. One of the first problems that had to be solved was the doctrine of God. No sooner had Constantine brought peace to the church than a new danger arose from within, which split Christians into bitterly warring camps. In about 320, a fierce theological passion had seized the churches of Egypt, Syria, and Asia Minor. Sailors and travelers were singing popular ditties that proclaimed that the Father alone was true God, inaccessible and unique, but that the Son was neither co-eternal nor uncreated, since he received life and being from the Father. The controversy had been kindled by Arius, a charismatic and handsome presbyter of Alexandria. He had issued a challenge which his bishop, Alexander, found impossible to rebut. How could Jesus Christ have been God in the same way as God the Father? Alexander and his brilliant young assistant Athanasius immediately realized that this was no mere theological nicety. Arius was asking vital questions about the nature of God. In the meantime, Arius, a skillful propagandist, had set his ideas to music, and soon the laity were debating the issue as passionately as their bishops. The controversy became so heated that the Emperor Constantine himself intervened and summoned a synod to Nicaea in modern Turkey to settle the issue. Today, Arius's name is a byword for heresy, but when the conflict broke out, there was no officially orthodox position. In his Gospel, St. John had made it clear that Jesus was the Logos. He also said that the Logos was God. Yet Arius insisted that Jesus was not God by nature. He had been promoted by God to divine status. He was different from the rest of us because God had created him directly, but all other things through him. But Jesus' divinity was not natural to him. It was a reward or a gift. The very fact that Jesus had called God his Father implied a distinction. Paternity, by its very nature, Arius said, involves prior existence and a certain superiority over the Son. Arius believed that men and women could get to God under their own steam, but Athanasius had a less optimistic view of man's capacity for God. He saw humanity as inherently fragile. We had come from nothing and had fallen back into nothingness when we had sinned. It was only by participating in God through his Logos that man could avoid annihilation, because God alone was perfect being. If the Logos himself were a vulnerable creature, a mere man as Arius maintained, he would not be able to save mankind from extinction. The Logos had been made flesh to give us life. That meant that Christ, the Logos made flesh, must be of the same nature as the Father. As Athanasius said, 
the Word became man in order that we could become divine. When the bishops gathered at Nicaea on the 20th of May, 325, to resolve the crisis, very few would have shared Athanasius's view of Christ. Nevertheless, Athanasius had the support of Constantine, the emperor, and so managed to impose his theology on the delegates, and only Arius and two of his brave companions refused to sign his creed. This made creation ex nihilo, out of nothing, an official Christian doctrine for the first time, insisting that Christ was no mere creature. The Creator and Redeemer were one. This is the Creed of Nicaea. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of all things, visible and invisible, and in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one substance, or homoousion, with the Father, through whom all things were made, those things that are in heaven and those things that are on earth, who, for us men and for our salvation, came down and was made man, suffered, rose again on the third day, ascended into the heavens, and will come to judge the living and the dead. And we believe in the Holy Spirit. The show of agreement at Nicaea pleased Constantine, who had no understanding of the theological issues. But in fact, there was no unanimity at Nicaea. After the council, the bishops went on teaching as they had before, and the Arian crisis continued for another 60 years. Christians were still confused. If there was only one God, how could the Logos also be divine? Eventually, three outstanding theologians of Cappadocia in eastern Turkey came up with a solution that satisfied the Eastern Orthodox Church. They were Basil, Bishop of Caesarea, who died in 379, his younger brother, Gregory, Bishop of Nyssa, who died in 395, and his friend, Gregory of Nazianzus, who died in 391. The Cappadocians, as they are called, were all deeply spiritual men. They were convinced that religious experience alone could provide the key to God. Trained in Greek philosophy, they were aware of a crucial distinction between the factual content of truth and its more elusive aspects. The early Greek rationalists had drawn attention to this. Plato had contrasted philosophy with the equally important teaching handed down by mythology, which eluded scientific proof. Aristotle had made a similar distinction when he had noted that people attended the mystery religions not to learn anything, but to experience something. Basil expressed the same insight in a Christian sense when he distinguished between what he called dogma and kerygma. Both kinds of Christian teaching were essential to religion. Kerygma was the public teaching of the church, based on the scriptures. Dogma, however, represented the deeper meaning of biblical truth, which could only be apprehended through religious experience and expressed in symbolic form. Besides the kerygma, the clear message of the Gospels, a secret or esoteric tradition of dogma 
had been handed down in a mystery from the apostles. This had been a private and secret teaching, which represented a more developed understanding of the faith. A distinction between esoteric and exoteric truth will be extremely important in the history of God. It was not to be confined to Greek Christians, but Jews and Muslims would also develop an esoteric tradition. The idea of a secret doctrine was not to shut people out. Basil was simply calling attention to the fact that not all religious truth was capable of being expressed and defined clearly and logically. Some religious insights had an inner resonance that could only be apprehended during contemplation. These elusive religious realities could only be suggested in the symbolic gestures of the liturgy, or, better still, by silence. Western Christianity would become a much more talkative religion and would concentrate on the kerygma. This would be one of its chief problems with God. In the Greek Orthodox Church, however, all good theology would be silent or apophatic. As Gregory of Nyssa said, every concept of God is a mere simulacrum, a false likeness, an idol. It could not reveal God himself. Basil reverted to the distinction that Philo had made between God's essence, or his ousia, and his activities, energiae, in the world. We know our God only by his operations, or energiae, he said, but we do not try to approach his essence. This would be the keynote of all future theology in the Eastern Church. The Cappadocians were also anxious to develop the notion of the Holy Spirit, which they felt had been dealt with very perfunctorily at Nicaea. And we believe in the Holy Spirit seemed to have been added to Athanasius's creed almost as an afterthought. People were confused about the Holy Spirit. Was it simply a synonym for God, or was it something more? St. Paul had spoken of the Holy Spirit as renewing, creating, and sanctifying, but these activities could only be performed by God. In the spirit of Nicaea, it followed that the Holy Spirit, whose presence within us was said to be our salvation, must be divine, not a mere creature. The Cappadocians employed a formula that Athanasius had used. God had a single essence, or ousia, which remained incomprehensible to us, but three expressions, or hypostases, which made him known to us. Instead of beginning their consideration of God with his unknowable ousia, the Cappadocians began with mankind's experience of his hypostases, or manifestations, which have been revealed to us as Father, Son, and Spirit. This did not mean that the Cappadocians believed in three divine beings, however, as some Western theologians imagined. The Cappadocians insisted that there was an important difference between ousia and hypostasis, which it was essential to bear in mind. The ousia of an object was that which made something what it was. It was usually applied to an object as it was within itself. Hypostasis was used to denote an object viewed from outside, from without. 
Sometimes the Cappadocians like to use the word prosopon instead of hypostasis. Prosopon meant the exterior expression of somebody's inner nature. So when the Cappadocians said that God was one Uzia in three hypostases, they meant that God, as he is in himself, was one. There was only a single divine self-consciousness. But when he allows something of himself to be glimpsed by his creatures, he is three prosopoi, or expressions. Thus, the hypostases, Father, Son, and Spirit, should not be identified with God himself, because, as Gregory of Nyssa explained, the divine nature, or Uzia, is unnameable and unspeakable. Father, Son, and Spirit, Gregory said, are only terms that we use to speak of the energiae by which he has made himself known to us. The Trinity, therefore, shouldn't be seen as a literal fact, but as a paradigm or pattern that corresponds to real facts in the hidden life of God. Greek and Russian Orthodox Christians continue to find that the contemplation of the Trinity is an inspiring religious experience. For many Western Christians, however, the Trinity is simply baffling. The Latin theologian who defined the Trinity for the Western Church was Augustine. Where the Greeks approached God by considering the three hypostases, Augustine and Western Christians after him have begun with the divine unity and then proceeded to discuss its three manifestations. Augustine can be called the founder of the Western spirit. No other theologian apart from St. Paul has been more influential in the West. We know him more intimately than any other thinker of late antiquity, largely because of his confessions, the eloquent and passionate account of his discovery of God. From his earliest years, Augustine had sought a theistic religion. He saw God as essential to humanity. Thou hast made us for thyself, he tells God at the beginning of the confessions, and our hearts are restless till they rest in thee. At first, he found the notion of the Incarnation offensive, a defilement of the idea of God. But while he was in Italy, Ambrose, Bishop of Milan, was able to convince him that Christianity was not incompatible with Plato. Yet Augustine was reluctant to take the final step and accept baptism. He felt that for him, Christianity entailed celibacy, and he was loath to take that step. Lord, give me chastity, he used to pray, but not yet. His final conversion was an affair of storm and drung, a violent wrench from his past life and a painful rebirth, which has been characteristic of much Western religious experience. Augustine's fascination with the mind led him to develop his own psychological Trinitarianism in the treatise De Trinitate, about the Trinity, written in the early years of the 5th century. Since God has made us in his own image, Augustine argues, we should be able to discern a trinity in our minds. Within the soul, there are three properties, memory, understanding, and will. Like the three divine persons, these mental activities are essentially one because they don't constitute three separate minds, but each one fills the whole mind and pervades the other two. 
like the divine trinity described by the Cappadocians. All three properties, therefore, constitute one life, one mind, one essence. This understanding of our mind's workings, however, is only the first step. The trinity we encounter within us is not God himself, but a trace of the God who made us. Gradually, by cultivating a continual sense of God's presence within our minds, the Trinity will be disclosed. This knowledge was a creative discipline which would transform us from within by revealing a divine dimension in the self. The fifth century, when Augustine was writing, was a dark and terrible time in the Western world. The barbarian tribes were pouring into Europe and bringing down the Roman Empire. The collapse of civilization in the West inevitably affected Christian spirituality there. The Church had to preserve its doctrines intact, and, like the pure body of the Virgin Mary, it must remain unpenetrated by the false doctrines of the barbarians. A deep sadness also informed Augustine's later work. The fall of Rome influenced his doctrine of original sin, which would become central to the way Western people would view the world. Augustine believed that God had condemned humanity to an eternal damnation simply because of Adam's one sin. The inherited guilt was passed on to all his descendants through the sexual act, which was polluted by what Augustine called concupiscence, the irrational desire to take pleasure in mere creatures instead of God. Neither Jews nor Greek Orthodox Christians regarded the fall of Adam in such a catastrophic light. Nor, later, would Muslims adopt this dark theology of original sin. Augustine left us with a difficult heritage, a religion which teaches men and women to regard their humanity as chronically flawed can alienate them from themselves. In 529, the Emperor Justinian closed the ancient school of philosophy in Athens, the last bastion of intellectual paganism. Four years later in the Eastern Church, however, four mystical treatises appeared, which were purportedly written by Denis the Areopagite, St. Paul's first Athenian convert. They were, in fact, written by a 6th century Greek Christian who has preserved his anonymity. The pseudonym had a symbolic power, however. Pseudo-Denis managed to baptize the insights of Neoplatonism and wed the god of the Greeks to the Semitic god of the Bible. Denis was also the heir of the Cappadocian fathers. Like Basil, he took the distinction between kerygma and dogma very seriously. He affirmed that there were two theological traditions, both derived from the apostles. The kerygmatic gospel was clear and knowable. The dogmatic gospel was silent and mystical. The hidden or esoteric meaning was for all Christians. Dennis was not advocating an abstruse discipline suitable only for monks and ascetics. The liturgy, attended by all the faithful, was the chief path to God and dominated his theology. The reason that these truths were hidden behind a protective veil was not to exclude men and women of goodwill, but to lift all Christians above sense perceptions and concepts to the inexpressible reality of God himself. 
the humility which had inspired the Cappadocians to claim that all theology should be apophatic became for Dennis a bold method of ascending to the inexpressible God. When Moses had climbed the mountain, Dennis said, he did not see God himself, but had only been brought to the place where God was. Everything that we can see or understand is only a symbol which reveals the presence of a reality beyond all thought. Indeed, Christians should realize that God is not the supreme being heading a hierarchy of lesser beings. In fact, God was not a being at all, and it was better, Dennis said, to call God nothing, since his existence did not correspond to any being that we could understand. Moses had passed into the darkness of ignorance and thus achieved union with that which surpasses all understanding. We will achieve a similar ecstasy that will take us out of ourselves and unite us to God. This is only because, as it were, God comes to meet us on the mountain. The God of the Bible turns towards humanity. God also achieves an ecstasy which takes him beyond himself to the fragile realm of created being. Emanation had become a passionate and voluntary outpouring of love. Dennis saw ecstasy as the constant state of every Christian. This was the hidden or esoteric message of scripture and liturgy, revealed in the smallest gestures. Thus, when the celebrant leaves the altar at the beginning of the Mass, to walk through the congregation, sprinkling it with holy water, this is not just a rite of purification. It imitates the divine ecstasy, whereby God leaves his solitude and merges himself with his creatures. Perhaps the best way of viewing Dennis's theology is as a spiritual dance between what we can affirm about God and the appreciation that everything we can say about him can only be symbolic. Dennis's method became normative in Greek theology. In the West, however, theologians would continue to talk and explain. Some would attribute their own thoughts and ideas to God in a way that was dangerously idolatrous. The God of Greek orthodoxy, however, would remain mysterious, and the Trinity would continue to remind Eastern Christians of the provisional nature of their doctrines. Eventually, the Greeks decided that an authentic theology must meet Dennis's two criteria. It must be silent and paradoxical. Greeks and Latins also developed significantly different views of the divinity of Christ. The Greek concept of the Incarnation was defined by Maximus the Confessor, who died in 662 and is known as the father of Byzantine theology. This approximates more closely to the Buddhist ideal than does the Western view. Maximus believed that human beings could only fulfill themselves when they had been united to God, just as Buddhists believed that enlightenment was humanity's proper destiny. The Logos had not become man to make reparation for the sin of Adam. Men and women had been created in the likeness of the Logos, and they would achieve their full potential only if this likeness was perfected. Just as enlightenment and Buddhahood were an enhancement of powers that were natural to humanity, so too the deified Christ 
showed us the state that we could acquire by means of God's grace. Christians could venerate Jesus, the God-man, in rather the same way as Buddhists had come to revere the image of the enlightened Gautama, the Buddha. He had been the first example of a truly glorified and fulfilled humanity. Where the Greek view of incarnation brought Christianity closer to the Oriental tradition, the Western view of Jesus took a more eccentric course. The classic Western theology was expressed by Anselm, Bishop of Canterbury, who died in 1109. In his treatise, Why God Became Man, he argued that sin had been an affront of such magnitude that atonement was essential if God's plans for the human race were not to be completely thwarted. The Word had been made flesh to make reparation on our behalf. God's justice demanded that the debt be repaid by one who was both God and man. The magnitude of the offence meant that only the Son of God could effect our salvation. But, as a man had been responsible, the Redeemer also had to be a member of the human race. It was a tidy, legalistic scheme that depicted God thinking, judging and weighing things up as though he were a human being. It also reinforced the Western image of a harsh God who could only be satisfied by the hideous death of his own son offered up as a kind of human sacrifice. Christians would adopt an exclusive notion of religious truth. Jesus, they claimed, was the first and last word of God to the human race, rendering future revelation unnecessary. Consequently, like Jews, they were scandalized when a prophet arose in Arabia during the 7th century who claimed to have received a direct revelation from their God and to have brought a new scripture to his people. Yet the new version of monotheism, which eventually became known as Islam, spread with astonishing rapidity throughout the Middle East and North Africa. Many of its enthusiastic converts in these lands turned with relief from Greek Trinitarianism, which expressed the mystery of God in an idiom that was alien to them, and adopted a more Semitic notion of the divine reality. In about the year 610, an Arab merchant of the thriving city of Mecca in the Hijaz, who had never read the Bible and probably never heard of Isaiah, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, had an experience that was uncannily similar to theirs. Every year, Muhammad ibn Abdullah, a member of the Meccan tribe of Quraysh, used to take his family to Mount Hira, just outside the city, to make a spiritual retreat during the month of Ramadan. Muhammad would have spent the time praying to the high god of the Arabs and distributing food and alms to the poor. He probably also spent much time in anxious thought. We know from his later career that Muhammad was acutely aware of a worrying malaise in Mecca, despite its recent spectacular success. During the last years of the 6th century, the Quraysh had become extremely successful in trade, and made Mecca the most important settlement in Arabia. They were now rich beyond their wildest dreams. Yet the old tribal values had been superseded by a rampant capitalism. People felt obscurely disoriented and lost. Muhammad knew that the Quraysh needed to find an ideology that would help them to adjust to their new conditions. To help the people cultivate the communal spirit that was essential for survival, 
the Arabs had evolved an ideology called Muruwa, which fulfilled many of the functions of religion. In the conventional sense, the Arabs had little time for religion. There was a pagan pantheon of deities, and the Arabs worshipped at their shrines, but they hadn't developed a mythology that explained the relevance of these gods and holy places to the life of the spirit. They had no notion of an afterlife, but believed that Da, which can be translated as time or fate, was supreme. Western scholars often translate Muruwa as manliness, but it had a far wider range of significance. It meant courage in battle, patience and endurance in suffering, and absolute dedication to the tribe. Muruwa had served the Arabs well for centuries, but by the 6th century it was no longer able to answer the conditions of modernity. During the last phase of the pre-Islamic period, there seems to have been widespread dissatisfaction and spiritual restlessness. The Arabs were surrounded by the two mighty empires of Sassanid Persia and Byzantium. Modern ideas were beginning to penetrate Arabia from the settled lands. Yet it seemed that the Arabs were doomed to perpetual barbarism. The tribes were involved in constant warfare, which made it impossible for them to pool their meagre resources and become the united Arab people that they were dimly aware of being. At the same time, the new ideas that were infiltrating the region brought intimations of individualism that undermined the old communal ethos. The Christian doctrine of the afterlife, for example, made the eternal fate of each individual a sacred value. How could that be squared with the tribal idea which subordinated the individual to the group? Muhammad was a man of exceptional genius. When he died in 632, he had managed to bring nearly all the tribes of Arabia into a new united community, or Ummah. He had brought the Arabs a spirituality that was uniquely suited to their own traditions and which unlocked such reserves of power that within a hundred years they had established their own great empire. Yet, as Muhammad sat in prayer in the tiny cave at the summit of Mount Hira during his Ramadan retreat of 610, he couldn't have envisaged such phenomenal success. Muhammad had come to believe that Allah, the high god of the ancient Arabian pantheon, whose name simply meant the god, was identical to the god worshipped by the Jews and the Christians. He also believed that only a prophet of this god could solve the problems of his people, but he never believed that he was going to be that prophet. Indeed, the Arabs were unhappily aware that Allah had never sent them a prophet or a scripture of their own. By the 7th century, most Arabs had come to believe that the Kaaba, the massive cube-shaped shrine in the heart of Mecca, which was clearly of great antiquity, had originally been dedicated to Allah. All Meccans were fiercely proud of the Kaaba, which was the most important holy place in Arabia. Every year, Arabs from all over the peninsula made the Hajj pilgrimage to Mecca. The Quraysh knew that without the sanctuary they could never have achieved their mercantile success and that their prestige among the other tribes depended upon their guardianship of the Kaaba. Yet, though Allah had clearly singled the Quraysh out for his special favour, he had never sent them a messenger like Abraham, Moses or Jesus, 
and the Arabs had no scripture in their own language. There was, therefore, a widespread feeling of spiritual inferiority. Jews and Christians used to taunt them for being a barbarous people who had received no revelation from God. The Arabs felt a mingled resentment and respect for these people who had knowledge that they did not. On Mount Hira in 610, on the 17th night of Ramadan, Muhammad was torn from sleep and felt himself enveloped by a devastating divine presence. Later, he explained that an angel had appeared to him and given him a curt command, Ikra, recite. Like the Hebrew prophets, who were often reluctant to utter the word of God, Muhammad refused, protesting, I am not a reciter. He was no Kahin, one of the ecstatic soothsayers of Arabia who claimed to recite inspired oracles. But, Muhammad said, the angel simply enveloped him in an overpowering embrace. Just as he felt he could bear it no longer, the angel released him and again commanded him, recite. Again Muhammad refused and again the angel embraced him. Finally, at the end of a third terrifying embrace, Muhammad found the first words of a new scripture pouring from his mouth. Recite in the name of thy sustainer, who has created, created man out of a germ cell. Recite, for thy sustainer is the most bountiful, one who has taught man the use of the pen, taught him what he did not know. The word of God had been spoken for the first time in the Arabic language, and this scripture would ultimately be called the Quran, the recitation. Eventually, after a period of several years, Muhammad began to preach to the Quraysh, bringing them a scripture in their own language. Unlike the Torah, however, which according to the biblical account was revealed to Moses in one session on Mount Sinai, the Qur'an was revealed to Muhammad bit by bit, line by line, and verse by verse, over a period of 23 years. He believed that he was putting the ineffable word of God into Arabic, for the Qur'an is as central to the spirituality of Islam as Jesus, the Logos, is to Christianity. We know more about Muhammad than about the founder of any other major religion, and in the Qur'an, whose various surahs or chapters can be dated with reasonable accuracy, we can see how his vision gradually evolved and developed, becoming ever more universal in scope. When Muhammad began to preach in Mecca, he had only a modest conception of his role. He didn't believe that he was founding a new universal religion, but saw himself simply bringing the old religion of the one God to the Quraysh, who'd never had a prophet before. At first, he didn't even think that he should preach to the other Arab tribes, but only to the people of Mecca and its environs. He had no dreams of founding a theocracy. He himself should have no political function in the city, but was simply its nadir, the warner. Allah had sent him to warn the Quraysh of the perils of their situation. His early message was not doom-laden, however. It was a joyful message of hope. Muhammad didn't have to prove the existence of God to the Quraysh. 
his existence was taken for granted. The trouble was that the Quraysh were not thinking through the implications of this belief. God had created them. They depended upon God for their sustenance, and yet they still regarded themselves as the centre of the universe in an unrealistic presumption and self-sufficiency that took no account of their responsibilities as members of a decent Arab society. Consequently, the early verses of the Qur'an encourage the Quraysh to become aware of God's benevolence. They will then realise how many things they still owe to him, despite their new success, and appreciate their utter dependency upon the creator of the natural order. In the Qur'an, an unbeliever is not somebody who doesn't believe in God, but one who is ungrateful to him, who refuses to honour him in a spirit of perverse ingratitude. The Qur'an was not teaching the Quraysh anything new. Indeed, it constantly claims to be a reminder of things known already, which it throws into more lucid relief. It reminds them, for example, that the Kaaba, the House of Allah, accounted in large measure for their success, which was really, in some sense, owing to God. If they failed to reproduce God's benevolence in their own society, they would be out of touch with the true nature of things. Consequently, Muhammad made his converts bow down in ritual prayer, or salat, twice a day. This external gesture would help Muslims to cultivate the internal posture and reorient their lives. Eventually, Muhammad's religion would be known as Islam, the act of existential surrender that each convert was expected to make to Allah. A Muslim was a man or woman who has surrendered his or her whole being to the Creator. The Quraysh were horrified when they saw these first Muslims making the Salat. They found it unacceptable that a member of the haughty tribe of Quraysh should grovel on the ground. The reaction of the Quraysh showed that Muhammad had diagnosed their spirit with unerring accuracy. In practical terms, Islam meant that Muslims had a duty to create a just, equitable society where the poor and vulnerable are treated decently. The early moral message of the Qur'an is simple. It is wrong to stockpile wealth and good to share the wealth of society fairly by giving a regular proportion of one's wealth to the poor. Almsgiving, or zakat, accompanied by prayer, represented two of the five essential pillars or practices of Islam. God was experienced as a moral imperative. Having practically no contact with either Jews or Christians and their scriptures, Muhammad had cut straight into the essence of historical monotheism. In the Quran, however, Allah is more impersonal than Yahweh. He lacks the pathos and passion of the biblical God we can only glimpse something of God in the signs of nature. Constantly, therefore, the Qur'an urges Muslims to see the world as an epiphany. They must make the imaginative effort to see through the fragmentary world to the transcendent reality that infuses all things. The Qur'an constantly stresses the need for intelligence in deciphering these signs or messages of God. Muslims are not to abdicate their reason, but to look at the world attentively and with curiosity. It was this attitude 
that later enabled Muslims to build a fine tradition of natural science, which has never been seen as such a danger to religion as in Christianity. But the greatest sign of all was the Quran itself. Western people find the Quran a difficult book, and this is largely a problem of translation. The Quran is written in dense and highly elusive elliptical speech. As its name suggests, it is meant to be recited aloud, and the sound of the language is an essential part of its effect. Muslims say that when they hear the Quran chanted in the mosque, they feel enveloped in a divine dimension of sound. It is not a book to be read simply to acquire information. It's meant to yield a sense of the divine and mustn't be read in haste. The early biographers of Muhammad constantly describe the wonder and shock felt by the Arabs when they heard the Quran for the first time. Many were converted on the spot, believing that God alone could account for the extraordinary beauty of the language. It's as though Muhammad had created an entirely new literary form that some people were not ready for, but which thrilled others. Without this experience of the Quran, it is extremely unlikely that Islam would have taken root. Muhammad as poet and prophet, and the Quran as text and theophany, are surely an unusually striking instance of the deep congruence that exists between art and religion. People probably imagined that they could go on worshipping the traditional deities of Arabia alongside Allah, the High God. But when he condemned these ancient cults as idolatrous, Muhammad lost most of his followers overnight, and Islam became a despised and persecuted minority. The first of the pillars of Islam would be the Shahada, the Muslim profession of faith. I bear witness that there is no God but Allah, and that Muhammad is his messenger. To make this assertion demands that Muslims integrate their lives by making God their focus and sole priority. Muhammad never asked Jews or Christians to convert to his religion of Allah because they had received authentic revelations of their own. The Quran did not see revelation as cancelling out the messages and insights of previous prophets, but instead it stressed the continuity of the religious experience of mankind. It's important to stress this point because tolerance is not a virtue that many Western people today would feel inclined to attribute to Islam. Yet from the start, Muslims saw revelation in less exclusive terms than either Jews or Christians. Muslims are intolerant, but intolerant of injustice. Whether this is committed by rulers of their own, like Shah Muhammad Reza Pahlavi of Iran, or by the powerful Western countries. Muhammad's belief in the continuity of the religious experience was soon put to the test. After the rift with the Quraysh, life became impossible for the Muslims in Mecca. Muhammad's own clan of Hashim were boycotted. Eventually, Muhammad's own life would be in danger. But fortunately, the pagan Arabs of the northern settlement of Yathrib invited the Muslims to abandon their clan and to emigrate there. This was an absolutely unprecedented step for an Arab. The tribe had been a sacred value of Arabia, and such a defection violated essential principles. Yathrib had been torn by warfare, 
and many of the pagans were ready to accept Islam as a solution to the problems of the oasis. Accordingly, during the summer of 622, about 70 Muslims and their families set off for Yathrib. In the year before the Hijra, or migration to Yathrib, or Medina, the city, as the Muslims would call it, Muhammad had adapted his religion to bring it closer to Judaism as he understood it. There was a large Jewish community in Medina, and after so many years of working in isolation, he must have looked forward to living with members of an older, more established tradition. Thus, he prescribed a fast for Muslims on the Jewish Day of Atonement, and commanded Muslims to pray three times a day, like the Jews, instead of only twice as hitherto. Above all, Muslims must now pray facing Jerusalem, like the Jews and Christians. The Jews of Medina were at first prepared to give Muhammad a chance. Eventually, however, they turned against Muhammad. The Jews had sound religious reasons for their rejection. They believed that the era of prophecy was over. Yet they were also motivated by political considerations. The Jews became antagonistic. They used to assemble in the mosque to listen to the stories of the Muslims and scoff at their religion. It was very easy for them to pick holes in the stories of the Quran, some of which differed markedly from the biblical version. They also jeered at Muhammad's pretensions, saying that it was very odd that a man who claimed to be a prophet couldn't even find his camel when it went missing. Muhammad's rejection by the Jews was probably the greatest disappointment in his life, and it called his whole religious position into question. But some of the Jews were friendly and seemed to have joined the Muslims in an honorary capacity. They discussed the Bible with him and showed him how to rebuff the criticisms of other Jews. And this new knowledge of scripture also helped Muhammad to develop his own insights. Muhammad also learned that in their own scriptures, the Jews were called a faithless people who had turned to idolatry. The polemic against the Jews in the Quran is well developed and shows how threatened the Muslims must have felt by the Jewish rejection. From the friendly Jews of Medina, Muhammad also learnt the story of Ishmael, Abraham's elder son. In the Bible, Abraham had had a son by his concubine Hagar. But when Sarah had born Isaac, she demanded that Abraham get rid of Hagar and Ishmael. To comfort Abraham, God promised that Ishmael would also be the father of a great nation. The Arabian Jews had added some local legends of their own, saying that Abraham later visited Ishmael, and together father and son had built the Kaaba, the first temple of the one God. Ishmael had become the father of the Arabs, so, like the Jews, they too were sons of Abraham. This must have been music to Muhammad's ears. He was bringing the Arabs their own scripture, and now he could root their faith in the piety of their ancestors. In January 624, when it was clear that the hostility of the Medinan Jews was permanent, the new religion of Allah declared its independence. Muhammad commanded the Muslims to pray facing Mecca instead of Jerusalem. This changing of the direction of prayer, or the Qibla, has been called Muhammad's most creative religious gesture. By prostrating themselves in the direction of the Kaaba, 
which was independent of the two older revelations, Muslims were tacitly declaring that they belonged to no established religion, but were surrendering themselves to God alone. They were returning to the primordial religion of Abraham, who had been the first Muslim to surrender to God and who had built his holy house. Muslims date their era not from the birth of Muhammad, nor from the year of the first revelations, but from the year of the Hijra, the migration to Medina, when Muslims began to implement the divine plan in history by making Islam a political reality. Muhammad had not intended to become a political leader at the outset, but events had pushed him towards an entirely new political solution for the Arabs. During the ten years between the Hijra and his death in 632, Muhammad and his first Muslims were engaged in a desperate struggle for survival against his opponents in Medina and the Quraysh in Mecca. Yet eventually, in 630, the city of Mecca opened its gates to Muhammad, who was able to take it without bloodshed. In 632, shortly before his death, he made what has been called the Farewell Pilgrimage, in which he Islamized the old Arabian pagan rites of the Hajj and made this pilgrimage, which was so dear to the Arabs, the fifth pillar of his religion. All Muslims have a duty to make the Hajj at least once if their circumstances permit. As they converge on the Kaaba, clad in the traditional pilgrim dress that obliterates all distinction of race or class, they feel that they have been caught up into a community that has one focus and orientation. They cry in unison, Here I am at your service, O Allah, before they begin the circumambulations around the shrine. Muhammad died unexpectedly in June 632. After his death, some of the Bedouin tried to break away from the Ummah, but the political unity of Arabia held firm. Eventually, the recalcitrant tribes also accepted the religion of the One God. Muhammad's astonishing success had shown the Arabs that the paganism which had served them well for centuries no longer worked in the modern world. The religion of Allah introduced the compassionate ethos which was the hallmark of the more advanced religions. Brotherhood and social justice were its crucial virtues. A strong egalitarianism would continue to characterize the Islamic ideal. Like any other faith, Islam could be interpreted in a number of different ways. Consequently, it evolved its own sects and divisions. The first of these, that between the Sunnah and the Shia, was prefigured in the struggle for leadership after Muhammad's sudden death. Abu Bakr, Muhammad's close friend, was elected by the majority, but some believed that he would have wanted Ali ibn Abi Talib, his cousin and son-in-law, to be his successor or caliph. Ali himself accepted Abu Bakr's leadership, but during the next few years, Ali seems to have become the focus of the loyalty of dissidents who disapproved of the policies of the first three caliphs. Finally, Ali became the fourth caliph in 656. The Shia would eventually call him the first imam, or leader, of the ummah. Concerned with the leadership, 
the split between Sunnis and Shi'is was political rather than doctrinal, and this heralded the importance of politics in Muslim religion, including its conception of God. The Shi'a-i Ali, or the partisans of Ali, remained a minority and would develop a piety of protest. Politics is not extrinsic to a Muslim's personal religious life, as in Christianity, which mistrusts mundane success. Muslims regard themselves as committed to implementing a just society in accordance with God's will. The Ummah has sacramental importance as a sign that God has blessed this endeavor to redeem humanity from oppression and injustice. Its political health holds much the same place in a Muslim's spirituality as a particular theological option in the life of a Christian. During the 9th century, the Arabs came into contact with Greek science and philosophy, and the result was a cultural fluorescence which, in European terms, can be seen as a cross between the Renaissance and the Enlightenment. A team of translators made Greek texts available in Arabic. Arab Muslims now studied astronomy, alchemy, medicine and mathematics with such success that during the 9th and 10th centuries more scientific discoveries had been achieved in the Abbasid Empire of Islam than in any previous period of history. A new type of Muslim emerged, dedicated to the ideal that he called falsafa. This is usually translated philosophy, but has a broader, richer meaning. Like the French philosophe of the 18th century, the philosophes wanted to live rationally, in accordance with the laws that they believed governed the cosmos. At first, they concentrated on natural science, but then, inevitably, they turned to Greek metaphysics and determined to apply its principles to Islam. They believed that the god of the Greek philosophers was identical with Allah. Greek Christians had also felt an affinity with Hellenism, but had decided that the god of the Greeks must be modified by the more paradoxical god of the Bible. Eventually, they turned their backs on their own philosophical tradition in the belief that reason and logic had little to contribute to the study of God. The philosophes, however, came to the opposite conclusion. They believed that rationalism represented the most advanced form of religion and had evolved a higher notion of God than the revealed God of Scripture. There were problems, however. The God of the Greek philosophers was very different from the God of Revelation. The supreme deity of Aristotle was timeless and impassable. He took no notice of mundane events, did not reveal himself in history, had not created the world, and would not judge it at the end of time. Indeed, history, the major theophany of the monotheistic faiths, had been dismissed by Aristotle as inferior to philosophy. Unlike history, philosophy had no beginning, middle or end, since the cosmos emanated eternally from God. The philosophes wanted to get beyond history to glimpse the changeless, ideal world of the divine. Despite the emphasis on rationality, Falsafa demanded a faith of its own. It took great courage to believe that the cosmos was really ruled by the principle of reason. Philosophes also had to cultivate a sense of an ultimate meaning amid the frequently disastrous events of the world around them. There was a nobility in Falsafa, a search for objectivity and a timeless vision, 
They wanted a universal religion which was not rooted in a definite time and place. They believed that it was their duty to translate the revelation of the Quran into the more advanced idiom developed through the ages by the best and noblest minds in all cultures. Instead of seeing God as a mystery, the philosophes believed that he was reason itself. Such faith in a wholly rational universe seems naive to us today, since our own scientific discoveries have long since revealed the inadequacy of Aristotle's proofs for the existence of God. This perspective was impossible for anybody in the 9th and 10th centuries, however, but the experience of falsifer is relevant to our current religious predicament. The scientific revolution of the Abbasid period involved its participants in more than an acquisition of new information. As in our own day, scientific discoveries demanded the cultivation of a different mentality. Science demands the fundamental belief that there is a rational explanation for everything. It also requires an imagination and courage not dissimilar to religious creativity. Like the prophet or mystic, the scientist forces himself to confront the unpredictable realm of uncreated reality. Inevitably, science affected the philosophes' perception of God and made them revise and even abandon the older beliefs of their contemporaries. In the same way, the scientific vision of our own day has made much classic theism impossible for many people. To cling to the old theology is not only a faith. listening to religion the history of religion we've got five discs i'm excited for it i've been learning a lot uh but now in studio we have latoya the sheriff of truth and we have kayla of fun drunk stories and wonderful things yay and we're all here hanging out after a very successful sunday streets uh and there we go real be real close in on the mic is this close That's enough perfect. oh yeah I know I'm close. Yeah. Hell yeah. Ooh, I like I'm still tired. I like my intro there. Yeah. <laughs> fun junk. Fun. <laughs> well, no, you've got the stories of all the people in the fun things. You're like, I like it. Doo -doo 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 -doo. <laughs> I'll just be my nickname, Fun Junk. <laughs> that's a good name that's for a band. That's fun actually junk. a good name for Look a band. Look at this outfit. This is fantastic. <laughs> this Thank is you. Because <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm Sunday Streets kicked my ass. Yeah, I, dude. Yeah, I went out. Because it was our friend's birthday last night, Kyla was there, and I I had to cut out early because I was tired. You lasted. You lasted I lasted the whole yeah. set. Yeah. And the after, you went to the after. That's true. Yeah, yeah, there was a comedy set at the Condor. Oh yeah, I usually sometimes am on that, but Mike Evans Jr. is out of town, and Tim Young is booking it, and he's not a fan of Pam. But he's I've not been a fan of Pam. He's what? not a Pam. It's okay. He's not a Pam fan. They're not. Some of them are. Some of them are. But I usually I often get booked on that Condor show. And I love it because I show my titties. It's hella funny. It's yeah. great. Yeah. yeah. It's a hella funny show. It's great. It, it was like, it was my first time there on a Monday. And I didn't know that they did comedy shows there. Yeah, did not know that. Did you, was this your first time there? Minus uh, titties? Yeah, it was. But uh, it's part of, I believe, uh, Troy Moyd and Johnny Funcheap. Yeah, they all, they all host it. Um, or they've been putting this together for years, and so Johnny yeah, Hella Funny's us. been around for eleven years now. Uh, yeah. Story Moyd's fucking kills it, and he got that connection with Johnny Funcheap in the beginning. He runs over thirty-five shows every week all over the city, and they're always stacked. 
Um, I'm often on the maze Friday and Saturday shows. They have seven to nine shows, seven to nine o'clock. But yeah, Stroymoid's amazing. I wish I knew how he marketed. I have no idea how he has people at every show. It's remarkable. Yeah, I, I would love to, when I have a little bit more high energy, to check that out again. And then if you're on the ticket, that'll just give me. And then you'll be in for free because I'll just bring you in. It's yeah. fine. You don't have to pay your tickets. I'll bring you in when I'm on a show like that. I love how we're both literally just like slumped over. Yeah. Like holding on the microphone for dear life. Like it's uh, <laughs> holding on to dear life. And I, I, I made it home before I knew if I had one more drink because I did not have any drinks at the saloon. But I knew if I had one more I, it would have taken me down because I had only eaten earlier that day, mm. low energy, working seven days, physical activity all weekend long, yeah, yeah. running up and down that freaking street. Pam knows. Big, long street. She it was eight blocks that yeah. was off. It was we'll, wild. Yeah, we'll, it was we'll get into that, which was fun. Do you remember but, any of the girls that were on the show last night? I'm just confused, uh, just uh, c oh wondering if you remember any of them. Because I, I was totally trying for a guest set on that show last night, but there's just no point in me asking that because the one guy who's out of town, Mike Evans Jr., he he loves me. He's amazing. I'm one of the so I got there on <laughs> CPT. Uh, for those who don't know, that means color people time. That means I was late. Uh, so I didn't see the beginning. I got there like probably like three three comics before the last one, and the last one was a, a woman. She was awesome. Did I get her name though? What color was she? I think she was either Afro Latina or black or mixed, or... Was she bald? No, no, Cherise she had hair. Yeah, she had hair. She she had hair, curly hair. Uh, was it Ashley Monique? Oh, yeah, that sounds that familiar. Sound, that yeah, sounds yeah, about Ashley right. Yeah. yeah, that makes sense that to me. That sounds about right. I think yeah. she, she killed it in the She's end. She's a thicker Latina. Yeah, uh -huh. she had some, yeah, because I was oh, like, ooh. She's a teacher. She's a teacher. Yes, she's that was, she's a substitute teacher. Yeah. That's yeah. Ashley Monique. Yeah. Uh -huh. oh, yeah, so good for her. That was, yeah, so she she closed the show, and I think she brought all the energy back up, too. She was pretty funny. Yeah, she's funny. She's, yeah. Oh, so. All the girls were fun. There was one that was kind of, like, awkward. Oh, they had oh, Brett Harper that Jennings one. on. They had Brett Harper Jennings on. Uh -huh. you had the one that, like, kind of reminded me of, like, Kitty. And they had Natasha Vinnick. <laughs> and I know all those Nail girls because feet. those are the ones that <laughs> those are the ones that Tim Young's likes and they all get yeah I'm gl I'm glad I didn't push to get cuz I was going to show up and try for a guestie but I was like with those girls on there wasn't going to get they already booked mm. enough girls well, so it, it still would have been fun if you would have oh, came it would out be great because then, then we would have just dragged you along with us. Well, oh, it would have yeah. been it'd be great if I was booked on every show in San Francisco. <laughs> Absolutely, that would be the best option for me. Maybe we're in, when we're in better form and it's not like festival Sunday street fest season. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You let us know the next time you go. Oh, well, I, she I, does I, I have shows she, seven days a week. Every single day of the week, yeah. I have a show. I just I run open mic seven days a week, but then I'm also this Thursday I'm on the Hella Funny show at. Uh, Puff Puff Laugh at Barbary Coast, 7 o'clock. That's a good one. That's a hella funny show. Hosted by Big T. Yeah. I wanna, I've been wanting to check that one out. I, it's just like sometimes, you know. Uh. Two weeks ago, there's a new one called Wine Sluts that's great on Mission on Folsom and 7th. That's a new hella funny show. Oh, at the, wi the at new the wine, wine bar. The wine bar. And the only problem with that wine bar, they don't take cash. They only take cards. Oh. And stuff. I know. I tried to tip her because they gave me free alcohol for performing. And I tried to tip her, and I was like, I only have a 10. Can you give me change? She goes, we don't have cash here. And I was Whoa. like, what? Whoa. So she went into her wallet and gave me $6 back, and I'm like, okay, $4 oh, is a fair tip. that's weird. 
That is like kind of ass backwards because it's you're so used to people that's like no cash credit only. cards, cash yeah. only, like no, last opposite. night, you know, cash only. But wow, I guess they really want Uncle Sam to know that we're here. We pay our taxes. I guess. You know? <laughs> it was all digital. I was surprised. But yeah, there's all kinds of wonderful, hella funny shows all over the city. Yeah. And I uh, plus I wanted to know. So Pam Mutiny, uh, Mutiny Radio was out uh, at uh, Sunday Streets Valencia yeah. this past Sunday. And I kept missing your sets because yeah. I was at work. Damn it. Um, but every time I saw from where I was in the info booth, I saw that there was a crowd over in that area, which is pretty nice. So how did it go? Because It was great. We had three 20-minute shows, and I had they were all clean comics, so it was great. There were no F-bombs. There was no, like, egregious masturbation jokes with children <laughs> walking by. Nothing about bestiality. Nothing of their normal sets. Everybody was clean. They all did, like, super hot five to sevens, depending. Because what happened was we communicated with the band and said, hey, we can't compete with you guys. You're too loud. Are you taking? They said, well, we're playing from 12 to 3. And I said, you're playing the whole time for three hours? That's wild. I said, no, no, no. We've got 40-minute sets and then a 20-minute break. And I said, that's amazing that works when you're done just wave at me and we'll start up and it was perfect their drummer was like last song we're like yes so they'd finish and then we'd be like hey everybody the band was great we got comedy over here and then everybody would coalesce and i'd talk about the festival and i do a bunch of jokes and people did different sets every time too it was great nice. and we had charlie moore who's just wonderful and he's clean he has a joke he's so tall and funny and he plays basketball for college and he has a joke about um, uh, Division One sports are sponsored by Gatorade. Division Two sports are by Powerade. Division Three sports are powered by financial aid. And then he goes, <laughs> the difference between a Division One, Division Two, and Division Three uh, team is how many white players are on the court. <laughs> if uh -huh. there's one, like. Division one, two, three. There's three white players. Anyways, he does it better, but I was trying to quote him. Anyways, he's really funny and he's super clean. And then Lauren Kraut knocked out of the park, as she always does. And we had Spencer Devine, who's also incredible. I like Lauren because she's like, you know, like she's animated. And I think for that crowd too. Sometimes. Well, Spencer's animated. Lauren, she's she could be animated. She opened with um, Don't I Look Like uh a, oh, a scared bird or a yeah, day old. Scared bird I look like one. a I day like old that. French. I look like a scared bird or a day old French fry. Don't I look like Woodstock with the hair I like the and the big nose? That's the one I like. If he was, uh, <laughs> if he was an old dyke with an eating disorder and poor social skills. See, I have everybody's jokes. Yeah, it's that's stupid. the one I it's like. Stupid. Yeah, she says, uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have chosen this frame, this face, and this frame to represent my lofty ideals. This isn't what I had in mind when I said adorable fun-sized lesbian. <laughs> Anyways, it's silly how I have. But then uh, Spencer Devine, he's a super animated one who's like, uh, suddenly Jeff gets a three-day weekend and he's a time lord. And today is Christmas. And today is Christmas too. Electric boogaloo. And there's this whole thing about paying in snakes. Yeah, that works for me and the snakes, but nobody else. There's, but he was great. He was clean. We had a really great time. I have this dot card now so that you touch it to people's phone and it goes directly to our Instagram. So oh, I got like yay. five new Instagram followers, which was really great. Nice. Um, so that was a big deal. And we sold one t-shirt, so 20 bucks. Uh, uh, uh. So Were people asking questions about like, where are you guys located? You know? Yeah, yeah, it was mostly like old people that didn't have phones where I was like, let me tap my dot card. 
And they're like, we don't have a cell phone. <laughs> and I was like, okay, so you don't want our Insta. I said, seven, we have shows seven days a week at all different venues. We also have Mutiny Radio or Free Speech Venue. And they were like all, you know, they're old people. They yeah. just were like, what cool things are going on? They weren't. But a young, there was a one guy who was like, I, this is so funny because two days ago I was like, I want to start doing comedy and I don't know how to do it. And I'm like, well, you came to the right place. place. Yeah, so come on. <laughs> we got m- a possible future comedian coming through. Well, that's like every week. I mean, we have tons of new people every week that come in and try it. And some stick around, a lot don't. But yeah. that's fine. I'm doing a new thing to finally make revenue because this place is not going to survive. I realize that. It's... Because we've had the grant now for a couple months and still have no money. So I'm like, you know, once the grant funding runs out, it disappears. Mm-hmm. Or we yeah. find a viable revenue stream. And so I figured it out. The only thing we can do is play to my strengths. And I should be teaching comedy college here. But we're going to call it like Comedy Academy because there already is a comedy college. I like but that. the funny thing is all the kids pay $400 to go to comedy college. And then they come to me and they suck. And then I teach them. So why am I not getting the money from the get-go? There why are they go. going to comedy college? That guy doesn't have two MFAs in creative writing. That guy hasn't been a high school teacher for years. That guy hasn't taught in college level or done anything. He hasn't done shit. He's, he doesn't actively do stand-up right now, but he has. He makes all of his money teaching comedy. But then they all come to me. So it's like, what can I make some money? So do it. I'm going to teach. I'm going to try to get. Good idea, right? Uh-huh. Well, because it's, and there's deliverables. It's six two-week classes where at the end we'll do a show here. And we'll make people pay so I can make more money. But their deliverables are a three-minute, a hot three-minute set, a hot five-minute set, a show at the end, and a video. And they can start with nothing, and I'll work with them, and we'll write jokes together, and we'll do it. And I can absolutely teach them all the tricks or the starting tricks in 12 weeks or six weeks, 12 hours. So the video is like the final. (laughs) Right. Well, the show is the final, but we also tape it. And then they have the video, and then they can apply it to people and say, hey, look. I'm here's my hot five book me and then they can ostensibly get booked so th- they don't get that from comedy college no, it's a professional video that they're doing they them to take around exactly well yeah. not professional it'll be from here but it'll still be a video it'll be better <laughs> than what they're getting if they did it by themselves yeah well yeah. they wouldn't be able to have a show a book a, like a booked show where people are actually laughing right. it would be like from a stupid open mic where none of the comedians are paying attention so I figure if I got if I do three to five hundred dollars sliding scale, it's totally worth it. It's That's absolutely worth it. Fifty bucks a class to have someone who's like, like a legitimately professional comedian that makes all their money off comedy teach you. Like, wh- why wouldn't That's you? That's a good idea. Right. So it's the only thing that's going to save the station. And all the kids keep going, "Let's do this and let's do that." I'm like, no. Like, if I don't make money in this place soon, I have to let my marketing team go, and then. Then they've created all these things for me that I can't do. They're like, why don't we videotape things and put them behind a paywall on Patreon? (laughs) But I've had a Patreon for six years. I haven't done bupkis with it. What am I going to start doing it now? Like, you're just going (laughs) to add new shit for me to do? I don't know if that happens to you guys at your job. Where Does that ever happen to you where people just come up with ideas and then say, hey, you do this. It's like, but this doesn't play to my strengths. Yes. Yeah. I've I've actually earlier this year with uh, one of my – colleagues we bumped heads because of it because i'm like well first they were coming in brand new and they didn't know how how we all worked so you know but yeah i've been there Uh. i understand and it kind of annoys me and it gets me off my game well i just if we could all play to our strengths then everything would 
everything in life would work, right? Like, I'm not going to. I'm not going to tell somebody who doesn't know how to bake bread, like, you're in charge of baking bread now. They don't know how to do it. Why would they do that? That would make no sense. It's going to be weird. But they got to learn how to bake bread and then do it. That's weird. So when people ask me to do Instagram stuff, I'm like, I just learned how to post multiple pictures at once. Like, I just learned that. <laughs> I'm not going to learn anything from Instagram. Plus, it's just more shit. Time on my phone, all it does is make me into a worse person. Social media, the more time I spend on social media, the worse I feel about myself, the less I'm actually producing work. The, it's, it's all just an evil drain on my soul. I, I, how do you feel about social media? Oh, no, I agree. I'm getting anxiety from this conversation just talking about social media. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, no. Like, oh, my God. Yeah, so it's like. It is. It's like, oh, I hate. I, God, I've done social media, and I'm kind of doing social media for this company, and they, like, desperately need it. Because uh, everything's so visual now. It's mm -hmm. like you have to have a business on social media. And it's just like, uh, it's uh, my husband's um, cousin. And he's been doing like uh, like restaurant consulting here in the Bay Area for like 20 years. And he's a little older. And it's like for him, he's just like, I don't get it. <laughs> I'm like, it's okay. I'm like, you asked a millennial. I'll come in. I hate it. It's terrible. <laughs> you have to do it. Yeah. It's awful. You have to post your you're supposed to post every day and there's a way to automate it, but I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to figure out how to do that stuff because it's not in my strengths. Like, and trying to make somebody do something that isn't like anything with technology just takes me five times longer. So it's like, what can somebody else do it? I like mean, we're <laughs> really destroying that joke. That's like, you have a face for radio. Uh, <laughs> like right. Radio <laughs> business, And we're like putting like visuals on Instagram, I'm like, wow, there this is really weird. Well, and that's the <laughs> same thing I feel as someone just said, hey, why don't we, why aren't we insta-living all of our podcasts? I said, well, we do it on Mondays and Fridays because it's the stage and it's comedians on stage and that makes sense. Who wants to watch three women in a room talking about social media? Like, it makes yeah. no sense. It's like, why would you watch a podcast? Yeah, I always, when people do ask about like, um, you know, oh, is the podcast live? I'm like, no, we, we record it and tape, you know, it's tape. It's not from a live studio audience, you know, it's, you know, which I might, I, I, not everything needs to be live, you know, that's the thing. And to me, I don't mind social media because the way I do it, even for work, I take my breaks. Right. <laughs> like, but here's the thing. So I've been chastised because I'm not on TikTok. I don't do TikTok. My mom is on TikTok constantly, and she's the one that forced me to get it. I have an account, but I'm not. I'm is not on there. Making content? Can I no, follow her? you can't follow her. <laughs> she's under Stephanie Wynn. <laughs> like both my mom and my aunt are on TikTok, and so and sometimes they get their news from there as well. I I'm just more of an Instagram person because I do pay attention to. I like people's photos. I do like the aesthetics. If someone dies, like, <laughs> for, for like you know, like for example, yesterday I had to give an RIP to Pee Wee Herman. Oh wow, uh, I didn't even know about that. He, he died Paul, yesterday. Paul, Paul, Paul Rubens. Paul Rubens. Yeah. So wow. you know, stuff like that. I didn't know you about know, that. and then also there is some political stuff that I like to look at. And then Facebook is for my families and the old people who also I a don't. Graveyard. Yes, a gra <laughs> that's so a really good place. It's a watch your family die exactly yeah. that is also but uh, it's it helps me so because i have family like all over the country and uh overseas whereas i can 
talk to them without picking up my phone and texting them. Because sometimes mm. I don't feel like being bothered. And I don't, I'm not in the mood for a long conversation on the phone. Who has time? So, exactly. And so, like, again, if it's someone's birthday, happy birthday! Yeah, I did yeah, my yeah, part. Yeah, 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 Are yeah. you coming to someone's uh, wedding? No, sorry, no, can't do. Or, oh, that looks like fun. Sorry I wasn't there. You know, but then I think too, too many times our society has just been worshiping social media where they don't know, they can't tell the difference between reality. Yeah, like fake news. Fake news. And then also there's this trend that's been going on for a very long time of self-snitching, meaning committing crimes on live, on, on Facebook Live. Like, wow. why, would you do that? why would you do that? Like, I just read a story about someone um, robbing someone's house on IG Live. Why? Wow. Oh, and then there was the wow. the the woman they that have was. No, no, it's on their no, phone. It's, it's on, on the, their it's, phone. No, it's it's traceable. No mask on. And here's another example. There, so there was this, this story That's that was to, really. Let dumb people get be dumb. Let dumb people get in so trouble. It's so dumb. There was this woman that um lied. She faked. Uh, she lied about her kidnapping. It was a hoax. And this happened in Alabama last week or two weeks ago. And lo and behold, they the the FBI end up tracing oh. her Facebook. And an Instagram of things that she looked up or Googled. Like, for example, she looked on social media, you know, uh. how to plot your own fake, uh, fake a kidnapping. Or what movies to watch for a kidnapping. One was taken, oh, wow. by the way. Stop. I'm not kidding. I'm not. And this girl was 25. What okay? was she so after? Just she, oh, oh, the reason why she faked her kidnapping? Because, you know, people that do that do it for stupid shit. Because... She was mad because she her boyfriend had been cheating with the stripper and it was all over dick basically. That's amazing. So she and now she's getting charged. Of course, Good for her. Be she, and, and she was her own kidnapping. Oh, yes. this is I really like this detail, this whole thing. It's uh they found on her credit card statement she had gone and purchased a bunch of like food at Target. <laughs> yes, you know the story. And so it was like one very specific detail. She's like, I was tied in a room blindfolded and being fed cheeses like all weekend. And they're like, wait a minute. Like, oh, like you 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 <laughs> left all your stuff in your car, but you took your snacks with, with you. you. Wow. <laughs> they like, really sat in a hotel room eating cheeses all weekend. Right. Wow. Yes. You know and the story. Cheez-Its doesn't sponsor this woman, and we don't get an ad. Like, they're just, I don't know what they're doing. They got, yeah, well, they had free, there's a lot of free marketing there with the Cheez-Its. I wonder if Cheez-Its stock goes up. It probably, it probably Nabisco, did. right? Nabisco. Kidnap Nabisco. snack. The kidnap, the oh, kidnap, kidnap snack. snack. Yeah, that sounds good. But, I mean, I think there's a lot That's of people funny. that are so delusional that, you know, it's even beyond social media. If you have these things called phones, you are traceable. Yeah. And so, and I think that's where, you know, people can't tell the difference between, you know, what's on social media and what's reality. And in reality is if you do something stupid on social media, illegal, you're going to get caught. Yeah, there's, it's all, you're in the matrix. So this is, I, I don't know if I've told you this theory before about Facebook, and I know you're like, Facebook is a graveyard, and it is, it's for the old people, we're all there. But it's the same kind of idea about Instagram or MySpace. And if you would have if you would have presented this when I was a child or in the seventies or the early eighties, let's say before all that existed, that I took a bunch of Polaroids of all of these things and I invited you over to my house mm -hmm. and I said, 
look at all these pictures on the wall. I want you to come into my house and I want you to touch the things that you like. And then I, here's a Sharpie. I want you to put a, put a dot or a mark <laughs> on everything that you like that's here on my wall. People would have said, you're an insane person. What the fuck is wrong with you, you narcissistic <laughs> fuck? I'm not going to come over here and validate your life by touching your items and telling you that you like them. But that's basically what we're doing. We're putting our lives in front of everyone digitally and saying, do you like me? Am I good enough? Please, will somebody t tell me I'm good enough? Mom, Dad, look what I'm doing. Friends, people, will someone have friends? I have friends. Look, I have friends now. I have, and then, and there's an endorphin rush, they say, that when you get a like or you get mm -hmm. an acknowledgement mm -hmm. that it, it somehow validates your soul. Mm -hmm. And Clout. so, we but what is happening that we, and I get, and I'm completely victim to it, which is why I spend as little time on Facebook and Instagram as possible, is that, I can't use that as a source of validation for my life. I can't use something digital and say, this gives meaning to who I am. This gives me validity. This is important. It's not. It's, it's, it's just bleh. I think that this person-to-person -person contact and what we do individually is what makes us human. And mm -hmm. when we digitize it, we're moving ourselves and we're getting more. Who knows what's a bot and who's a person now? So if a bot out there in Facebook likes my thing, I'm like, ooh, that's not even a real person. It's a fake account from a machine that's wandering around the internet. Right. I, I, you know, I, I'm not going to lie. Sometimes I do, uh, <laughs> I ego trip sometimes on IG. I'm not going to lie, but that's why I've learned how to, I can only post things about myself maybe once or twice a week, or I might even skip a week. Baby, you're a thirst trap and now you're married. So you need to <laughs> cut that shit out. You got to cut that thirst trap out. I know, I see your pictures. You're in the UAE. You got your, you got your bathing suit on by the pool. Like sitting there looking on. You got your, I, you got, and you give I that believe look, you got And you're like, ah, oh, thirst trap. Document it. Even look back. Yeah, like, exactly. Because sometimes I do miss Polaroids, you know, where it's just like, oh, I just got this minute. And you shake it and then all of a sudden, you know, it's there, but also I think it's clout. A lot of people do things for clout, and it's weird. It's not even money. It's not even an endorsement. It's just to get all these unknown people to like me, and you're chasing it, and it's like almost as bad as heroin for some people, you know? Yeah, I mean, statistics and heroin, very similar. <laughs> I have 50,000 followers, I'm important. It's like, I guess, I don't. I, I think that Mutiny Radio has like maybe 2,500. We're so little. But now with this dot card, man, I'm trying so hard, like touching people's phones. Like You'll get you're more. You're raking in all the likes with that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Blink, blink. Mm -hmm. like. It's hard, though. I have one of those. And it's like a little clunky because if they try to get your, your contact card, you have to like manually download it. Huh. Yeah, so it's something to keep in mind. I just okay. have yeah. I just have our dot card goes straight to the Instagram. Oh, so it's like nice. you touch it and it goes there because that's all we really need if people will just follow us on that thing that I don't understand. It's it's nuts. But here's the good thing. It's it is it is free marketing. It is a way that you don't have to pay for advertisers and stuff like that anymore. And you can choose you are your own brand. And I think that's what I do. That is one of the pros to me uh, about social media is like, I am my brand and I can choose if I want to change it or not, which is kind of cool. Or like, you know, even with Mutiny, 
it, the fact that you are posting on Instagram and you do have do the lives and stuff that does help and it does get reached to people from all over the world. I hope so. Because you never know who is watching. Oh, I do. I wave at them whenever I when I sit here and I've got the phone back there and it's pointed at the stage and I'm doing the ones and twos. When I see someone join on, I press wave. Oh, like, yeah. Hello. <laughs> Hello. I'm acknowledging you. Um, but I don't know how to comment. Or do anything back. The I just acknowledgement sell is all that people sometimes want, you know, rather than you know, like ignore them. But I, I can't imagine who's oh watching our stuff. Have you me. seen? Oh my god, what is it? The the non playable characters, NPC. That like, it's this like new wave of these like people who make money online pretending to be like like uh, game characters. Oh god, and then they what? have to react. Like people will send them. I don't remember what stream this is on kind of like a TikTok thing or whatever it is, Twitch or whatever. And so you can like send these little tokens and they're like cashable on these apps. And so people will react to these tokens that people are sending them, but they're like they're like non-playable characters and they're like wow. little game characters and they're like, oh thank you. Schlick schlick schlick. Like <laughs> ice cream. Like, oh yeah. Like this like woman, her name is Pink Pink Bunny or Pink something. Pink Pink Doll. Pinky doll. Pinky doll. That I was it. Look this up. Oh my gosh. You, it's insane, and I can see, like, how people are so into it because it's, like, this weird, like, you're, like, controlling these people on the other side of the screen but, like, also sending them tokens in a sense, and they're raking in, like, thousands and thousands of dollars That's a wild. day. That's wild. It's insane. Pinky doll. Yes. Oh, wow. And it's not OnlyFans. I don't think it's OnlyFans. I don't. I don't use the. Only I don't understand platform. how OnlyFans works. My feet either, don't, don't look good enough to use OnlyFans. I think. I was so. I would totally sell my feet. Hundred percent. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I was so <laughs> about. I was. I even asked my uh, Marcus about like if I do OnlyFans and just do feet, and this is during the pandemic because ain't nobody got no job, right? Not during uh, 2020, and so I was like, same thing, like not the face, but the feet for sure, because. Feet make money. That's mm -hmm. so weird. I don't understand. I don't understand the future or people or what they want. I mean, even in a comedic sense, I've been watching what the new like cute hip girl comedians are doing, and it's like one girl has a new joke, and I I loosely call it a joke, but about movie snacks. I'm like, you have nothing to say on stage. You want to talk about movie snacks? Like, mm -hmm. say something about feminism or. Something. Say something about anything. Movie not snacks. Even, not even a balance. Of it's uh, it's because I think there's some comedians mm. that are trying to reach the largest swath of audience possible. Safe. And right, safety and whatever. But man, my thing is write as much material as possible, polish as much as possible, and then figure out who the audience is, and then do those kind of jokes. Mm -hmm. For example, Condor is booked as a hella dirty show. I would absolutely open with my dirtiest joke and talk about all the thing, I do all the gross, gross Pam jokes, all of them. It, it's, but it's like, I'm not gonna get up there and do menopause jokes because it's not the, the right It's not audience. the venue in the audience. I'm not gonna go, <laughs> I'm not gonna go to a, a show with, and I look at the audience and it's a bunch of 26 to 30 year olds and do menopause jokes. No, I wait till I'm at Comedy Oakland and over half the audience is over 40 year old women. And then I do the menopause jokes. But the trick is to have enough material that you can hit every audience rather than have your material be. I think it's better to have more material than it is to make less material broader. Does mm -hmm. that make sense? Yeah. Like, 
don't know. I thought the audience at the the comedy strip club was a little stiff. They were I stiff. I did. T- I did. Huh. I. Yeah, I, I agree. Think we carried it because we, we did. were like we were rolling like sixteen deep or something. Wow, like that. Yeah, we rolled in as a big crew. We took up the whole back. Wow, we're filling in the last and everyone God, in the front. I'm like, did you think there was gonna be titties? Yeah, today? titties are after the show. Yeah, God, I wish um, would have been. On it and then because I noticed those two dudes in the front uh, that were stiff as a board as yeah. well. And you know those are. <laughs> there wasn't enough masturbation the, jokes. I, I guess right? not, but yeah. I mean. Did you and um, uh, did you find any of the comedy offensive? I didn't. I just no. remember at some points some people were like, "Oh," or "Ooh." I think it was over like a lot of the unhoused jokes. Yeah. I mean, what I, I like. I'm not a. I'm not I'm sensitive. Not a, yeah, I'm just like, and and you could tell it's kind of like they they work through a lot of their stuff too. I don't mm-hmm. think they haven't like reviewed it. I don't think it was like overly insensitive. Yeah. Yeah, I, it's just sometimes funny doing um, comedy here in SF because sometimes people, some people are too soft. Well, and if they taste. do pull back, you have to acknowledge it as a comment. Like, oh yeah, if uh, you know, if somebody goes, <gasps> like, oh, is that what it was? And then I'll do that joke. Why can't Californians have guns? <laughs> because. because because they're always triggered. They're just, oh. they're just words. They're just words, friends. Just, sometimes words are a little political. Watch out. That is, that's actually really funny. Thank you. I, now, I'm crazy. I say words are magic. I think they're witchcraft. That, that's why we call it spelling. Ooh, nice. I know. I got jokes, guys. <laughs> I write lots and lots of jokes. I lots and lots of punchlines. I just really liked the fact that it, it felt like you do have a little bit more freedom to, because honestly, I think people forget that comedy and strip clubs used to be a really big thing, yeah. you know, especially like in the 60s and 70s, before in this, uh, they, uh, before the 80s when the comedy um, theater boom happened, a lot of the clubs or a lot of comics would perform in strip clubs. Yeah, and I mean, that one you went to, the Condor, is the first one in the United States. Carol yep. Dota's first, they were the first topless, topless bar, topless bar yeah, in nineteen sixty four, yeah, something like that. And there's a really interesting story about there that where there, one of the strippers and the bouncer were having sex. There used to be a piano that came from the ceiling that Carol Dota used to come down off of, and she nice. was in this thing. But they were having sex on the piano, and it malfunctioned and it went foop up to the ceiling and the the guy died and the girl didn't so the his body piano went up foop to the ceiling and and he got smashed and she was underneath him and he died and she's fine but so some people say that the condor is haunted so he died with airbags (laughs) yeah (laughs) so he died on top of her on top of her Uh, inside her oh i don't know probably it was the piano and it went foop up to the ceiling and that is like some looney tunes kind of x-rated looney tunes absolutely Carol Dota's I didn't very see the famous. piano when we were there. I so it's in the like other room now. Oh, so they okay. it's not on the ceiling anymore because it's dangerous. And when you are in the bar room that's on the side, before you go upstairs where the balcony is, there's a piano that's glass. And it's on mm. the, it's like, now it's a place where they strip and stuff. Yeah, and that, I saw that. That was that's really the cute little homage there. Yeah. Mm. Wild. I, I know all kinds of weird shit. I w- <laughs> I'm wondering if I could find a story on it because yeah. now I'm finding this very fascinating. Yeah, yeah. There was like, it was a, a, a guy who worked there, a bouncer or something. And, and that place is actually one of my favorite, like, uh, titty bars to go to because I like to see, like, 
real real boobs and sometimes it <laughs> real real boobs. no no i know they don't they have sh- they have real they don't have like augmentation yeah it's way. not like when you're at the glow was it the gold, the gold club? club yeah <gasps> we're all big. i don't feel welcome there well and they've <laughs> got that weird. they've got that incredible two-story pole and one of their dancers or two of them are incredible uh what's her name dakota no it's Sahara. It's a, whatever it is. It's a desert name, but she makes everybody wet, and she <laughs> does this stuff. She's so athletic; it's unbelievable. Like she goes up to the top and then falls back down backward and like does this crazy thing. She's wild. It's just incredible. It's not Sahara. It's something like a desert name though, and it's not Gobi. Hmm. I can't remember, but she's incredible, and she's one of the Condor girls. Yeah, it was nice being. You know, I had a nice time out. <laughs> Their drinks Less are expensive, night. but other than that, it's fun time. A strip club wouldn't have cheap drinks. You gotta they're gonna make you spend that dinero. Yeah. They're gonna make you spend that money. Whenever I'm on that show, I always tell people at the beginning of my set, I say, You cl- if you laugh and clap hard enough, I, I will show you my titties. And <laughs> so I af- at the last like minute, if they laugh and I and I'll at minute eight I'll be like, Really, I'm not getting enough from you guys. Uh and That's then awesome. I'll do something and show people my tits and they walk off. And they I always like it. that. <laughs> <laughs> I do well, that for free. Well, yeah. no, but we're, it's just that I like to take my clothes off, but I only do it in appropriate places, like strip clubs. So, I mean, I'm not gonna like at a normal comedy club be like, "Hey, everybody, I'll show you my tits." But at the Condor, it's the one appropriate place for me right. to take my clothes off. You wouldn't be the only one there, topless. Exactly. Huh? Yeah. Exactly. Right in. Yeah. <laughs> so, I love the Condor. We'll see when Mike Evans Jr. gets back. His wherever he is. Didn't you just get back from a trip? Were you just get back from New York or something? Mm-hmm. How yep. was New York? I went to New York. It was great. It's actually my first time as an adult. Nice. So my husband and I have been talking about it for a long time, and I finally finished school, so now it's like. So I'm like, cool. I guess I'll have a summer vacation in New York. Uh, so it was great, and and Stewart, my husband. Uh, and a moniker, his name is Brogast Stewart, and he built like a ride company deeply in New York like 15 years ago or something. So, kind of like having like the best tour guide in New York, where nice. everything is closed <laughs> since <laughs> he wrote this book. Oh, wow. <laughs> but we were also wow. like comparing all the costs, where it's like none of these prices exist anymore. So, 2007 we to like pre- to present. found the best deal though. It was in Wall Street. Uh, it was this little bar uh, like right off of Wall Street, like right around the corner, a little cool little like. I think it was like an old Irish bar or something. And they had uh, like a $26 lobster special on like Mondays. Wow. It's an all-day special. And you're basically and – you, and it comes with like a Guinness or you can get another beer, like a pint beer of For your choice. A whole pint. What? I know. Oh, and shut like up. corn and all this stuff. And it was so cheap that like we were sitting next to this table with like these other like Wall Street guys. And they're like – we're gonna get another round and of like lobsters. Of lobsters, they got two rounds of lobsters. That's like amazing. It was insane. I want to go there. Oh well, my so god! You know that in New York, it was the it was the which tribe was it? The Algonquin tribe. But they used to lobsters were so prevalent. They were like the cheap people food. It was mm-hmm. just like poor people, people. ate lobster, yeah. which is funny. But there's also they used to eat their their oysters were so big that came out of the Hudson and all that, and they the the Native Americans. For years and years and years, they had these places where they'd throw their, throw their uh, shells from their oysters. And over time, those sunk into the ground, and they, were these, they, they calcified. So when they were trying to run a new 
subway through that part, through the Wall Street area, through the original part, which was the, which was the, the bay where all the Native Americans lived, they were taking these like diamond mines. They were trying to cut through that. Like, we can't get through the ground. What is going shells. on? Oh, and wow. it was thousands and thousands of years of Native, American, Native Americans living on those shores and using the same piles for their wow. oyster shells. They were just these piles, that they, and they, then they sunk crazy. over time, and so they couldn't get through. So that's why there's no – if you look at the subway map, you'll notice that there's no subway that goes, like, down there along that edge, right? Like, it goes right. across from Brooklyn, and then there's the ones in the center, and there's the ones that go across. But there isn't one, like, along that area that would go from Wall Street all the way up through Chinatown all the way up. And they tried, but it's because of the Native Americans. Oh, okay. So that's why I had to get <laughs> off. Wow. 